happy Saturday. It's October 1st, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Hi, Ashley. <laughs> Hi, Michael. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. I'm just sitting here. There's a chill in the air here in New York today. It's autumn is here. And I strangely, I saw the news out of Paris the other day that Emmanuel Macron, in order to encourage people to turn down their thermostats and save heat this winter with the cuts in heating coming out of the natural gas problems, he's no longer going to wear a shirt and tie under his suit. He's now wearing a turtleneck, almost like a 1960s Andy Williams kind of look. But it made me feel like it's just a French version of Jimmy Carter wearing a cardigan in the 1970s under the energy crisis. I mean, I don't know how it, it looks très chic. But I don't know how well it's going to sort of play with the people. That's what I was just looking at. I like that look from Macron. I think if anyone can wear a turtleneck well, it's that guy. But I'm not confident that the turtleneck is going to solve these problems. Honestly, the energy crisis these days, it's big. But when you're looking at the whole bounty of global affairs, it really looks like the tip of the iceberg in terms of our disasters. And we're going to talk about all of those train wrecks here today on the show. We've got a great show. We've got Human Maj talking about uh, the protests in Iran. We've got two other fun guests. We've got John Lithgow with Douglas McGrath giving us a fun sneak peek at what they're up to. And we have George Pendle talking about George Maloney's election in Italy and what we might call the sisterhood of the traveling brown shirt, why women are the new faces of the far right. You know what I do want to talk to you about, though, is guess what? I did see a movie today here in London. I played hooky this morning and I went to go see Don't Worry Darling. So we can talk about that now or later in the show. It's up to you. Bring it on. As it's been referred to in Among the Hollywood set, it's Kill Your Darlings. Is it as much of a disaster as I'm led to believe or is there something redeeming about it? Well, for the first hour and a half, I thought I've seen this movie before. It was called Pleasantville. It had a great Beatles cover by Fiona Apple as the theme music. Been there, done that. But actually in the last 30 minutes, it redeemed itself for me. And it was funny because I thought this movie was going to be all about Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles. No, Harry Styles, love you. Okay. He's so much better uh, at Madison Square Garden. But I thought this movie really belongs to Florence Pugh. She is an incredible actress. I wasn't terribly familiar with her work before this, but she really shines. This movie is all about her. And the art direction is great. Enough with Olivia Wilde, Harry Styles. Let's get on to the real stuff, Michael. Tell us about this story you brought in from Iran. Yeah, this is a great piece of insight about the protests that have been happening in Iran over the last couple of weeks by a writer, our friend Human Maj. Human brings a very unique perspective. He is actually the grandson of an Ayatollah. He's Iranian-born, American journalist, author, and political commentator who writes on Iranian affairs and the author of a number of books. But he brings his insight as a Iran native, and also someone who has a Western perspective to the protests that have been racking the country. And what he really wants us to talk about is what hangs over the Ayatollahs in this moment, the specter of the Shahs toppling more than 40 years ago. So let's bring Human on the show and let's get talking. Welcome, Human. All right. We need the basics first, Human. First of all, what is happening right now in Iran and why is this important for us all to know about? Okay. Well, first of all, it's very hard to say what's happening in Iran right now. I was just on with a couple of people in Tehran. The internet is very spotty. It goes in and out. So the general sense I'm getting, not being there and not being able to be a direct witness, is that there are still demonstrations, but they are small in number and there's a heavy, heavy security presence on the streets of Tehran precisely to prevent these kind of larger gatherings. The issue is basically that these protests are not ending right now, and they're happening in a way that makes it very difficult for the authorities to 
end them. If there's a spontaneous gathering of four, five, six, ten, even twenty people who take their headscarves off and start shouting slogans, and the cops or the security forces run towards them and they disappear, that's it's a very difficult thing to put a complete end to. So that's what's happening right now. It's continuing to be protests. There continue to be clashes between the security forces, particularly in Iranian Kurdistan, where the Masa Amini was from. But in terms of whether we should be concerned, any kind of instability in Iran affects the United States. It borders Iraq, where we have troops. It borders Afghanistan. It borders, obviously, Russia, Russian former Soviet Union states. So it's important from a strategic standpoint for the United States that Iran be stable. And that's the reason I think at the highest levels of government here, people are looking at this very carefully, because the one thing that I think even Iranians don't want is a serious situation in Iran. You actually end up with violence on both sides and a civil war. So I think that's something that needs to be avoided in a place that has strategic importance to the West and the East. Human, at this juncture, do you anticipate that this could turn into a serious situation? Where are we at in terms of this conflict? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Iranians have always been concerned about protests turning into something bigger than than protests in actual war or a revolution. It's not clear that, I mean, I think some people do want a revolution, do want the Islamic system to collapse or to be overthrown. I think a lot of other people want serious, serious reforms that, that would help their lives. They don't want this kind of heavy-handed government that is constantly telling them what they can and can't do. Just the mere fact that, the, that this government can turn on the internet on and off at will is something that is extremely difficult for Iranians. Obviously, the hijab was a serious burden on women and has been, and women are just not willing to take it anymore, and they're willing to fight back. The hijab was just one aspect of how the state is trying to control their lives, specifically young people. And they're just not willing to take it anymore. Obviously, the spark was, it's bad enough that you're telling us we have to wear a hijab, but then we do, and then we get arrested, and then we die. I mean, that's just not acceptable anymore. And that's what happened, obviously, with Masa Amini. And I think there was just a spark that just told, said to women in Iran, young women especially, that we're just not going to take it anymore. We're not going to accept this government, this regime, this system, telling us what to dress how to behave. We know how to behave. We know how to dress. And it's something that is, I think, is going to be a long-term issue for the Islamic Republic. I'm not sure that they're willing to change the law on hijab, but I'm pretty confident that it's not going to be, they are not going to be able, the system is not going to be able to enforce it the way they have in the past. Well, Human, you make a very astute point in your essay this week that the Ayatollahs have kind of, the, the, the specter of the Shah's toppling haunts them, right? And it's, I think you say it's because he made a critical mistake in those protests in 1978 by apologizing, right? And sort of, once you give ground, yeah. what happens? Is, can you tell us more about that? I think, listen, the people who are the leaders of Iran today, the leadership of Iran, are the revolutionaries of 1977, 78, 79. They're all older men now, obviously, because of that. And they learn the lessons of what not to do. You show weakness and the people will come after you. You give an inch and, and they'll take a mile. You show weakness and you're like a wounded animal that pack of dogs are going to come and rip to pieces, which is what they saw happen with the Shah. The Shah, to give him credit, chose not to fight, but he chose to leave Iran. 
he said, okay, well, if you don't want me here, maybe I should leave and let's see if things calm down. He didn't expect there to be obviously a revolution right away, but he was willing to remove himself. That is not going to happen with the current leadership. You're not going to see the Supreme Leader removing himself saying, well, obviously this was all terrible and you guys are really unhappy with me, so I'm going to go into exile and go live in Damascus. It's not going to happen. Haman, as you note in your story, it's very difficult to predict what happens. The CIA can't do that. And we have 40 plus years in the U.S. of being in. But if you had to sort of just look at the next few months on where, where these protests take Iran and the Ayatollahs and that society, where do you think they could lead? I don't think at this point they're going to lead to a revolution because I think there's no indication that the security forces are hesitating in cracking down. But I do think they understand, the leadership understands in Iran that this is not sustainable, that they can't have a society that has people so deeply unhappy with them and with the rules and regulations. So I think there's going to be, any, I mean, I, I don't see the morality police patrols coming out in the near future or ever even perhaps they may even get disbanded last night in tehran time last night the president raisi the current president gave an interview and he said we can look at that we can look at whether he didn't say that the law would be changed and i don't think they're going to change the law because that would be what the shah did it's like say oh we're sorry we were wrong he said we can look at how the law can be which was kind of an admission of well, maybe this was the wrong way to enforce the law, have these patrols with cops going out and beating people and throwing them into vans and, and stuff like that. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that debate inside Iran. I think that there's going to be change in society and there's going to be a lot of questions that people are going to be asking. And it's like, for young people, what do we have to lose? I have nothing to lose right now. I have no future because you've got an economic issue for Iranian young people. It's not sustainable in the long term. Well, Human, thank you so much for joining us and giving us this incredible insight into what's really going on. We so appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Human. It's good talking to you guys. We'll be following the story and we'll probably most likely be having you back very soon. Okay, great. Thanks again, guys. Well, a fascinating reporter and a completely compelling, if tragic, story. Yeah. And as I said, if you want more insights, I would recommend one of his books. The best, I think, is The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, but you can get those at bookstores everywhere. There's something else insane happening in politics. Here in Europe, everyone is talking about Giorgia Maloney taking the reins in Italy. And so George Pendle has written a wonderful article for us about the global trend of fascist feminism. I wish it was a trend. It sounds like a fashion trend, Michael. Unfortunately, this trend is playing out in real life in the most hallowed halls of government. So welcome, George Pendle. George is a writer at large for Airmail, and we're very happy to have him here. Welcome, George. All right, George. Well, it's a big bummer when the first female prime minister of Italy ends up being a fascist. And this is unfortunately part of a trend that you explore in this week's View From Here, the fascist feminist. Tell us, what are we supposed to make of all of this? Let's start with Giorgio Maloney. Well, you're quite right. I mean, Giorgia Maloney is the first female prime minister ever elected in Italy, and this really should be a big deal for women around the world. As I say in the piece, there's really no sturdier glass ceiling in Western Europe than Italy. And to see someone break through that after years, kind of faceless technocrats or the kind of sleazy charm of Silvio Berlusconi is kind of remarkable. The only problem is she's saying a lot of stuff which is quite troubling. And as you say, heads a political party that descends from Benito Mussolini's original fascist party. So while we want to kind of 
praise this moment and see it as a great movement forward in, in women's rights across the world, it's hard to do so with what she's saying. Well, George, you, you mentioned the smartness of Maloney, and it's as you note in your story this week, she's kind of, I want you to tell us more about it, because she very, is, is very cleverly kind of rebranded the old fascism and how it sees women from the 1940s to like, and how it can appeal to women now and make itself seem more modern. Can you tell us more about how she sort of rebranded it to appeal to women and other people? Yes, I mean, that's quite right. When you think of the far right, the fringe right parties, which really the Brothers of Italy was, they were mainly male-dominated political parties that spouted forth undisguised racism, sexism, and violence. And really there's no clearer break from this past than to have a female leading them because 10, 20 years ago, women just weren't really allowed in those political parties. Suddenly back in Mussolini's day, they weren't. And so just Maloney's gender itself is this kind of symbolic break from the past. But when you add to that her smartness in basically taking these old far-right arguments, let's say immigration. The Brothers of Italy has traditionally been dead against immigration. They want to have a military cordon around Italy to stop immigrants coming in. And what Maloney has done is kind of brilliantly refashion it and see it as a kind of, see women really as taking a forefront in this battle against immigration. She's done this through a very strange way. The old political parties, the old far-right political parties always stressed that a woman should be in the home and that they should have as many children as possible and they should not break out of these roles. And what Maloney has done is kind of position herself. She says, I'm a Christian, I'm an Italian, I'm a mother. And she has positioned women as kind of being at the forefront of this battle against immigration. She's going to give welfare to kind of strengthen the family unit. And she sees like women having bigger families, stopping the decline in the birth rate, as being this battle against immigration. If there are more Italians being born, then you won't need all these immigrants coming in and taking your jobs. And so it's it's very cunning. It takes this virulent argument and it just repackages it. I mean, if you look at Le Pen in France, Marine Le Pen, who similarly heads a, what was once an all-male, extremely racist, extremely sexist political party, the National Front, she's done the same. And she's kind of positioned, again, feminism in opposition to immigration. She sees the great numbers of immigrants coming from Muslim countries as being an attack on women's rights. And I think it's sinister, but you've got to take their hat off. They've done a really good job of kind of turning what were these pariah organizations into something that not just angry white men can join, but angry white women can join too. When you drill down into what Maloney is kind of actually believes and what she's talking about, it's pretty scary stuff. I mean, she is said in the past she's a believer in this great replacement conspiracy theory. Now, this is the idea that immigration isn't just because of wars or even attempts to get financial gain. She sees immigration as being a conspiracy theory, kind of promoted by these shady, stateless, quote, financial speculators to kind of take over Italy. And now, you know, of course, any discussion of stateless financial speculators, it's a dog whistle. It's an anti-Semitism dog whistle. It's basically saying the old far-right story of, like, Jews are out there, they're controlling our country. What she's done is put this wonderful kind of window dressing around what is still very much virulent right-wing ideas. All right. Well, George Pendle, thank you so much for a wonderful story and for your wonderful thoughts here. We'll talk to you again very soon, I'm sure. Bye. Let's just take an escape from real life for a moment. That's traumatic enough. We need to go where things are better, happier, and more scripted. The theater. There is a new 
off-Broadway show, Doug McGrath, frequent contributor to Airmail, also regular on Morning Meeting, thank goodness. He has written an autobiographical solo show called Everything's Fine. It has just opened off-Broadway at the DR2 Theater. It stars Doug McGrath. It is directed by John Lithgow, two-time Tony and six-time Emmy winner. And this incredible play, it's a coming-of-age story about Doug McGrath's life as a 14-year-old in Midland, Texas. We don't only have Doug here, we have Doug and John here, because that's the kind of show we put on, Michael. Only the best of the best. We are so happy to have them here. Welcome, Doug McGrath and John Lithgow. John, Doug, how did the two of you first meet? Shall I tell this part, John? Do you want to tell the story or shall I tell it? You're, you're the writer. You tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll tell it. I have a guardian angel in the theater named Andre Bishop. Andre Bishop runs Lincoln and somehow John and I didn't know each other, though we have all the exact same friends. And so I said to John, and then John can take it from here. Yes, I was quite surprised that Andre would have suggested me as a director since I haven't directed anything in 45 years. No inclination to direct it at all. I mean, this I'm simply not a director anymore. But it was wonderful material that did need some shaping and it needed some guidance to turn it to steer it onto a state to the stage so we immediately made a lunch date and that was our historic meeting cafe luxembourg <laughs> in manhattan up the west side we just hit it off we it was a two hour long meeting and about half of it was talking about the script but the other half was just getting to know each other turning each other into old friends in the course of 45 minutes and he told me far far more about the history of the story first of all he authenticated the fact that it was all completely true which just floored me it made it an even more powerful story. Well, I'll just say this. I'd like to say this. You may have this very question for us, but I do want to say before that, that it may have been 45 years since John has last directed, but it seems to have come back fully and quickly. He directs me at lunch. He directs me when we're leaving the theater. He directs me during rehearsal. He never stops. He's a completely natural director. And I suspected that John's strength would be in guiding my performance, which he's been superlative about. But much more than that, he, he has this great visual sense of how the play should look and move and live in the space we're in. I have to tell you, the, the real fun of this, real fun of the first chapter of this, we spent about four months together online. I was in Los Angeles. He was in New York. We'd had that two hours together. But that was it. The rest of the time, it was simply him sending drafts, me reading them and and just responding and sending him notes and sending it back and him with amazing speed sending me other drafts must have gone through 20 of them in the course of about four months and when it seemed like just the right size shape tempo i said okay stop writing and spend the next two months just read memorizing this get it inside your bone just as you've written it and then i'll come to new york and we'll do a three-day workshop we'll rehearse it for a couple of days and on the third day we'll present it to maybe 10 friends and doug said no let's make it 40. i want to hear big laughs <laughs> he's absolutely fearless when it comes to this i myself wouldn't have dared do that but i said doug if you want 40 people we'll invite 40 people and they absolutely loved this so the next day 
I, I got cooking, seeing if we could get this produced. How does it feel to be acting back on a stage, especially given this theater shutdown that we've seen for the past few years because of COVID? Well, what's so wonderful about the piece is because it's a solo piece, it's just me telling a story, a story that happened to me in my life over a period of two years when I was about 14. So I'm looking right at the audience. I mentioned early in the show, I tell the audience, I said, I hope this will feel like you're just hearing a story around a dinner table, albeit a dinner table with 99 seats and playbills. But that's the feeling of it. And what's so nice is that having had people at home for so long and watching their screens for so long, what's the most old fashioned sort of thing of all, which is it's like the campfire. You're hearing a story from somebody directly looking at you who's enthusiastic to tell the story, who's enthusiastic to hear their reactions. And I got to tell you, you will not believe what goes on in that audience, the way they react (laughs) to the show. I don't just mean to the humorous stuff. I'm not going to give too much away, but the show, part of the show is about a teacher who took too much of an interest in me. That's, that's all I'll say. And whatever you may suspect that means, believe me, it's not what you think. And it keeps shocking the audience. We had our first big audience two nights ago at our invited dress rehearsal. The noise out of that audience, it was like the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> I, I was just shocked. It was like people calling out and it, it was very, very exciting. It's a wonderful communal feeling. It is wonderful to hear them make those noises. A gasp. When you hear an audience gasp, first of all, you know they're paying attention. That's a low bar, but that's the most essential <laughs> part here. It just means that they are so invested in this story. And Doug takes such pleasure in telling it. It's really, it's really something to behold. Well, it is fun to both amuse and shock people. And usually you've got a show where you're amused or you're shocked. But you, we're giving you a twofer. You get both and, in our show. And, and you're very, very moved. Look, it's time for me to praise Doug's writing. The structure, the sort of dramatic unfolding structure of this, it's like the perfect play because it constantly surprises the audience stage to stage. At first, they think this is going to be just a delightful and relaxed evening. And then things start going strange. And then they get very troubling. At a certain point, they get deeply shocking. And then there are tears. It's very moving. John, what's your favorite Doug McGrath project? And Doug, I posed the same question to you about John. Oh, I absolutely loved Emma, which was the first time I'd seen anything that Doug had written and directed. It's a beautiful production of Jane Austen, and I love Bullets Over Broadway. I have two things I'd like to mention of John's, because there are so many, you can't really, you think of one and then you think of ten others. But I'm going to name two, and one of them makes me particularly happy, because the first time I ever saw John, I was, I think, either in high school or early college, and he was in a production of the Kaufman and Hart play, Once in a Lifetime. And he was so hilarious and so brilliant that I remember having to open my playbill during the show, not not at intermission, not at the end, but I thought, who is this guy? <laughs> so he was just comically brilliant in that. And then most recently, he's done this brilliant work in The Old Man with Jeff Bridges, which is a universe away from the character he played. I mean, kind of everything John does is a universe away from what he does because he's always looking to be challenged. But the work in The Old Man is so great and dark and layered and scary. Just great. You see, I should not be here. I shouldn't be hearing these things. 
<laughs> all right, gentlemen. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. To all of our listeners, if you guys are not going and buying tickets right now to Everything's Fine, we don't even know what to say. It, previews are open now. The op- official opening is happening on October 13th. Again, it is called Everything's Fine at the Off-Broadway Theater DR2 on East 15th Street, New York. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You, Ashley, you Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, too. Really nice. <laughs> we'll, we'll see you soon, gentlemen. And bring the show to London, please, because we're suffering over here. Okay. We would love to. We're medics. We're theater medics on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank All you right. again. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, John. Those two. Love them. Michael, you're seeing this show, right? Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it. Ugh, I'm going to have to come back to New York for this. We'll be waiting for you. Ah, thank goodness. Okay, well, that was fabulous, Michael. Before we go off into this good weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend? I do. It's a quick one, and it comes out of our book review this week, and I was tipped to it by Bruce Handy. I seem to have been on a 70s music binge of late, and this book is part of it. It's called Mirror in the Sky, The Life and Music of Stevie Nicks, and it's written by a man named Simon Morrison. This book, at times, is a bit like a Fleetwood Mac concert, in that there are moments that seem to stretch on too long, and where you wonder if you're going to get twisted up in a bunch of scarves and not come back to the beat. But, all that said, if you're looking for a deeper look at the life of Stevie Nicks and how she got to where she is, including how her grandfather used to drag her to dive bars as a little girl to hear him sing, This Is For You. It's Mirror in the Sky, and it's out this weekend. And you, Ashley? I'm sorry to say that I stayed up way too late last night binge-watching a new Netflix series called The Empress. It takes us all the way back to the summer of 1853 when Duchess Cece, who was the daughter of a Bavarian duke, meets Emperor Franz Joseph and boom, they fall in love. She becomes an empress. It's, it's, it's like the crown, but you know, 19th century German Austrian version. It is fascinating. It's beautifully shot, really well acted, takes us back to a really interesting period in history in terms of the Austrian empire. And I thought it was extremely compelling and beautiful. So it'll uh, keep you entertained until we have the crown coming back for season five in November. So it is called The Empress. It is on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. Thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a marvelous weekend full of scandal, insouciance, and lots of fun. Michael, will you please read us out? Yeah, just as long as the scandal doesn't apply to us. Just scandals on others, not on your own self. But yes, of course. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.